Hi, everyone. This will just be a short recording in which I try to summarize some of the things that I've been thinking about all semester and share a few more final thoughts with you. The first and last thing that I want to say is thank you. Thank you for much hard reading and thinking and for many great conversations. We've covered 400 years of literary history and spanned several languages and cultures. We started with dictatorship, ended with one, saw several along the way. We've asked ourselves, what is a human? What is a human capable of? How we should live, how we should die? We've asked what a masterpiece is, and who decides, and what these very different masterpieces have in common. And I hope that you've been inspired to make a masterpiece of your own, whether that's a book, or a film, or a friendship, or a calling, or a meal, or just a moment. And I mean this in all seriousness. I agree with Azar Nafisi when she argues that a novelist like F. Scott Fitzgerald isn't writing The Great Gatsby to argue certain moral positions. It's not a book whose primary purpose is instruction. Nafisi argues instead that a novel is an immersive experience in another world. I also agree with Immanuel Kant and Oscar Wilde that one reason we should value art is because it's not utilitarian. It has no purpose, and this is one thing that makes it precious and beautiful. It lies outside the domain of usefulness. However, I also agree with Camus that the best novels are, in some definition of the word, philosophical. Novels are not like paintings or sculptures. Because they are made out of words, and because words have meanings, literary art is where the power of the word, which you can capitalize if you want, is most palpable. Since literature is made out of words, it partakes in something that the Greeks called logos, which is a very difficult word to define and a tricky concept to pin down. It's a word that can mean story or word or speech or reason or reasoning or consideration. It's the word that is used in the first chapter of John, the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And I think that because literature is made of words, it's fundamentally different from other art forms and partakes in the divine. There's something divine about great literature. I mean that seriously. Of course I would say this. To help us get a sense of the ways in which literature is different from other art forms, I like this quote by the German literary critic Ernst Robert Curtius, who said, Were Plato's writings lost, we could not reconstruct them from the Greek plastic arts, such as painting or sculpture. The logos can express itself only in words. So there is something powerful and unique about literature. I think Solzhenitsyn is right to say, that, quote, world literature has it in its power to convey condensed experience from one land to another, so that we might cease to be split and dazzled, that the different scales of values might be made to agree, and one nation learn correctly and concisely the true history of another with such strength of recognition and painful awareness as it had itself experienced the same, and thus might it be spared from repeating the same cruel mistakes. He says, from one nation to another, but certainly literature can also communicate from one individual to another. I feel directly spoken to across time and space when I read, for example, Tolstoy's The Death of Ivan Ilyich. That conversation that he has with his inner voice, what do you want? I want to live. To live? To live how? To live as you once did? Ivan Ilyich is invited to consider the fact that 
something in his life had been wrong, that he never actually began living. And when I read this, I'm invited to make the same realization about my own life. So there is moral work that happens when we read great literature. Shakespeare and Dickens and Wolfe and Shelley don't automatically make us better. It requires active work. And it often requires looking at ugly truths about ourselves and simply being provoked by great works. And even then, the process of self-improvement is always going to be one of backtracking, of trial and error, forgetfulness, and very slow progress. But these authors offer us the opportunity to become better if we let them. How else is wisdom to be attained? We get to ask ourselves now, before it's too late, how we want to live. We do not have to take our freedom for granted, like the people we read about in Solzhenitsyn. We can use these stories and characters as testing grounds for possible lives. Do we want to live like Madame Defarge? Like Victor Frankenstein? Like Don Quixote? Like Father Zosima? Like Dr. Rieu? When I survey the How to Live document that we've been compiling together, I see a kind of wonderfully chaotic mess. I see lots of contradictions, actually, which I like, because how to live in one instance might directly contradict how we should live in another. But I also see certain patterns or certain trends. Certain moral injunctions come up again and again. And if I am sounding preachy or didactic and have throughout the semester, just keep in mind that every injunction is directed primarily to myself. So when, if I say you, I really mean me. Various authors have emphasized we should not run away from suffering. Don't go out of your way to suffer, of course, and don't amplify suffering unnecessarily, but don't pretend you can escape from it. Suffering has things to teach us. Remember King Lear, expose thyself to feel what wretches feel. And Camus, the struggle itself is enough to fill a man's heart. Think of the importance of being present with death when we read Tolstoy's novella. And although we can suffer a lot, we can endure a lot. Think of what we've learned from Waiting for Godot, which I have summarized on the document as wait, keep waiting, play, joke, wait, love, endure, wait, play, fall down, get up, fall down again, wait, get up again, keep falling down, keep getting up. I also think a lot about ambition when I consider the books we've read. I don't mean to imply the pursuit of worldly status or material goods. Ambition can easily go bad which is something that Victor Frankenstein teaches us. But Quixote teaches us that kind of wild and delusional ambition is salvific. It's what gives meaning to Quixote's life and to the lives of those around him. Remember Sidney Carton finding something noble and large to do, saving someone. Remember Virginia Woolf, who encourages us not to hide behind excuses, but to give voice to the people who didn't have a voice in the past. Prevent the wounds of the future before they can happen. So write, paint, design, build, sing, study, read, cure, plant, grow, cook, code, parent, nurse, make, act, do, be. Do all of these without hate, resentment, or bitterness. In short, make sure that you can say when your life is over what Ivan Ilyich could not say, that you have been ambitious and that you have lived a life that you love. I noticed responsibility coming up over and over again. Think of that unnamed servant in Lear who said to himself, this is my job to stop, even if it means I'll be the first to die. Think of Dostoevsky, of course. Think of Charlie Chaplin. That kid you find on the street is your job. 
you're going to see metaphorical orphans for the rest of your life. Problems that no one else is solving because they don't want to or think that they can't. You could walk by and not try to solve these problems, or you could stop and pick them up and adopt them and fill the world with happiness and love. I mean, that's the consequence of what the tramp does in that film. Remember the lesson that Solzhenitsyn taught us. What happens if we don't love freedom enough? It gets taken away from us. So we are responsible for preserving our own freedom. I see a trend coming up of um, bitterness and resentment. talked about this a little bit when I alluded to Wolf. Think about Edmund, or Madame Defarge, or Frankenstein's monster, or the parents of that small girl in the Grand Inquisitor sections that we read, or the many thousands of people in Solzhenitsyn, or the potential authors that Virginia Woolf talks about who reacted instead of acted, who reacted to their anger. Love has been a common theme throughout these books. The world is a glorious place, right? Fill your mental mansion with glorious forms. Love people, love birds, love trees. Don't forget, like Cordelia, to love people even in their sins. Don't wait for them to be perfect. I remember that wonderful moment at the end of the plague. There are more reasons to admire humans than to despise them. I remember Don Quixote seeing others as they could be, even if this involves a layer of delusion. See others as they could be. You know, noble lords and ladies. Remember what Camus shows us, this intense isolation that these people suffer because of the plague. What you love will not always be in front of you, so love it while you can. I think the bottom line is that all of these masterpieces do what Horace says great literature should do, delight and instruct. Each of them is a combination of intense beauty and hard moral instructions. This is the gift of the past to us and the present the collective wisdom and beauty of countless generations that have come before us. You know, for all its horrors, horrors that we did not ignore this semester, that the past is one of our greatest gifts. It is our birthright. We need it, and we would be fools to reject it. I would be the first to admit that to attempt what I'm doing now, to kind of summarize or paraphrase the beauty and wisdom and power of these works, is itself a kind of quixotic or Quixote-esque endeavor. It can't be accomplished. The beauty and power of these works cannot be paraphrased. If it could, I would all be asking you to read, you know, the Spark Notes pages instead of the actual books themselves. But it is in the particular phrasings that the power and beauty of these works reside. Language has power, and language beautifully formed has special power. Think of the whole series of unforgettable phrases that we've encountered this semester. A life you love. No cause. Expose thyself to feel what wretches feel. Reason not the need. Thy mind shall be a mansion for all lovely forms. Love the birds. Kiss the earth. Life is heaven, says Dostoevsky. Life is heaven. Think of Virginia Woolf saying, Write what you wish to write. That's all that matters. And whether it matters for ages or only for hours, nobody can say. Think of Dr. Ryu's wonderfully phrased stoicism. Quote, I have no idea what's awaiting me, or what will happen when all this ends. For the moment I know this, there are sick people, and they need curing. Or think of the wonderful phrasing that the narrator gives us in that moment where they swim together and experience a happiness that knows murder. Think about Beckett asking, what do you do when you fall far from help? 
and providing this answer. We wait till we can get up, then we go on. And think about maybe my favorite from the whole semester, ripeness is all. Ripeness is all. What does ripeness mean? We talked about this a little bit. I've been thinking about it for a long time and won't pretend that it could be definitively defined. Its slipperiness is certainly one source of its power. But I think one thing it means is what Christ meant when he tells us to be perfect, be therefore perfect, in the book of Matthew. It's easy to think that what he's asking us to be is sinless, but I don't think so. As we talked about, perfect means complete. This is the etymology of the word that is being used in this verse. Complete, or finished, or entire, or fulfilled, or in other words, ripe. To become the best and most fully mature version of yourself. This doesn't mean to be sinless. It means ripening into your full potential. I've talked a lot about ambition in this class, and my belief that the world would be better if more of us were more like Don Quixote and attempted grand, daring, even insanely ambitious things. This does not mean an 80-hour work week, being rich and famous. It doesn't mean self-aggrandizement. As I said in class, Vladimir and Estragon in Waiting for Godot are in some sense perfect. Being perfect means knowing how to wait, knowing how to play while you're waiting, knowing how to get up when you fall far from help. It means knowing how to be with your family and enjoying your friends. It means not taking your freedom for granted. It means not letting bitterness or resentment cloud your mind. It means making yourself responsible for more than you are. Perfect in the sense of completion is much more accomplishable than perfect in the sense of sinless. You know, it's something we can start now. It is actually achievable in this life. We can start like Don Quixote did from where we are. His helmet wasn't perfect, his horse wasn't perfect, but in a sense his heart was. You know, one of my favorite answers that that we've seen for this question, how should we live, is simply a restatement of the question, we should live. That's how we should live. We should live. Writing at around the same time that Shakespeare was writing King Lear, the French essayist Montaigne is clearly being whispered to by the same muses that were whispering to Shakespeare. In his wonderful essay of experience, you can hear these Shakespearean echoes when he writes this, we are great fools. And then he quotes this inner voice that we all sometimes hear in moments where we're berating ourselves for not being as quote-unquote perfect as we think we should be. We are great fools. He has passed over his life in idleness, we say. I have done nothing today. And then Montaigne says, what? Have you not lived? That is not only the fundamental, but the most illustrious of all your occupations. And with that final parting encouragement to live, I will say thank you one more time for a great semester and hope that you keep reading and keep being delighted and instructed by all that you read.